0: And uh, I'll tell you what, one thing I really have loved as well, just of late too, is just the series we're in. You know, I mean, the Bible is powerful, and, and yet, you know, God is working, I think, in incredible ways through First Peter. I mean, in my own life, I know that I've heard from many people here that just the challenges that he's had for all of us, and today is going to be no different. Uh, he's got some pretty cool things in store for us uh, today through his word, and so I can hardly wait to dive in. And as I was looking at the subject matter today, as I was sitting down and reading through uh, what Peter wrote, I couldn't help but think of an event that happened to me when I was in high school. See, back in high school, and I don't really golf anymore, but back in high school, I golfed a couple times a week. In fact, in the spring and in the early fall, um, I, when I'd get out of school, I would go with a friend, and we'd go to the Pines Golf Course back in Michigan. Because if you got there before 4 o'clock... Uh, during the school days there, you could golf 18 holes for four and a quarter. Um, that's, that was a good deal back then. It's astounding today, and so we'd, I'd golf all the time. And the, the front nine was the hardest nine, but the back nine was my favorite, by far the most difficult. In fact, the second hole of that nine was just just outstanding. I mean, it's so hard because you would sit up high on this hill and you would tee off. And you could see, it was a par three, you could see the green down below. It was a long way down this hill. The fairway was about 20 feet wide. You had trees just lining both sides. So you had to, like, shoot a straight shot or you were in trouble and if you were long well that was a problem because in the back side of that green was a hill so you, the ball would hit the hill roll down roll across the green and land in this huge pond that was in, in the front of the entire green that wrapped all the way around the front to the left hand side and so your only hope uh, to hit a good shot was either to hit right on the green or off to the right hand side where there was some land there that you could, you could land on and then you could chip your shot up but that was it And so I watched this guy, he was in his 50s, he teed off, and his shot was amazing. He didn't land on the green, he landed just off to the right, so his ball was safe. So that's to be celebrated. And then I watched him as he chipped his shot. I mean, really, quite frankly, at that point, an easy chip onto the green. It's not that difficult. And he chipped his shot, and the ball kind of went up in the air, kind of went to the left, as opposed to where it was supposed to go, goes up, lands in the pond, you know, discouraging. But this guy was ticked off. And he starts taking his club and he starts hammering it on the ground. And then he picks it up. He throws it in his bag, picks up his bag, and chucks the entire thing into the water. I got to tell you what. Um, I looked at that and I thought, well, he's mature in age. But um, is the guy really mature, right? Then you start wondering where his car keys was. You know, it was that were those in the bag too? And as we look at maturity today, that's the question, you know, what makes us mature emotionally? What makes us mature spiritually? How do you know if you're mature? Well, the reality is that Peter's telling us we already are. Remember, because God has chosen us and we've responded to him. And as a result, we are chosen that we are hope to this world because of the hope of Jesus Christ in us. And because of that relationship, he makes us holy. We are holy. And we are then part of the family of God, called to bring others into his family. Then we learn that we are distinct by the way that we respond to those people who don't treat us all that well. And we learn that we are examples, that our very marriages serve as examples to this world. And now... Peter says, well, we are mature. We are mature. And you might say, well, I don't know that I really feel like I'm all that mature as a Christian. Well, the reality is that's how God sees you. When he looks at you because of what Jesus did for you on the cross, he sees his son and he sees someone who's beautiful, precious, somebody who is mature. And so what Peter does today is he tells us we need to start living according to the way that God already sees us. And so in light of that, he he outlines six character qualities of a mature believer. Six character qualities of a mature believer. Now, I want you to ask yourself today, as we go through each one of these six, is this true of me? Do I have this character quality already? Is this a pretty strong one for me? Do I need to grow in this area? We're going to dive into this today and we're going to be challenged. Uh, I just warned you. We're going to be challenged. I know that I was. And so let's take a look. We'll take a look at the first character quality that Peter writes about here. And uh, he begins by writing. It's first Peter chapter three, verse eight. And he says, finally, all of you live in harmony with one another. Live in harmony with one another. And what he's saying is because we are mature, we live harmoniously. We live harmoniously. See, Peter knew something back then that we all know today. The reality is we all come from different backgrounds. We all have different experiences. You might not have lived in Cincinnati your whole life, so you've lived somewhere else. You have those experiences. You have experiences of life. You have your experiences in past churches, perhaps, for some. You might even come from different denominations, whatever. And what he's saying is that even with all of our differences... We are to bring those to the family of God, but if any of those differences has any chance at all of of disrupting the church, of causing division, you're to set those aside in order to focus on the essentials of the faith, the very thing that binds us together and helps us to live harmoniously. In fact, here at MCC, we state it this way. It's actually on our website. In essential beliefs, we have unity. So in the essentials, we enjoy unity together. In fact, Paul wrote, there is one body and one spirit. There is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, and Father of all. So in essential beliefs, we have unity. In non-essential beliefs, we enjoy liberty. And so if something's important, but it's not crucial in terms of what it means to be a Christian and follow him, well, then we enjoy liberty there. In fact, Paul states it this way. Accept him whose faith is weak, without passing judgment on disputable matters. Who are you to judge someone else's servant, he asks. To his own master he stands or falls. So then, so then each of us will give an account of himself to God. So whatever you believe about these things, keep between yourself and God. So if you have some beliefs you think are important, but they could cause harm in the church, because it, it is, uh, well then you're to set that aside. Keep that between yourself and God. So in essential beliefs, we have unity. In non-essential beliefs, we enjoy liberty. And in all our beliefs, we demonstrate charity. Charity. Paul writes, if I hold in my mind not only all human knowledge, but also the very secrets of God. And if I have the faith that can move mountains, but have no love, I amount to nothing at all. And even though the Bible says this, that we are to live in harmony with one another, what happens invariably, uh, and I've seen it in my life in various churches, is that there are Christians who want to major on, on the minors. They want to major on the minors. And what Peter is saying is that because we are mature, we seek harmony by majoring on the essentials. In fact, the Greek word that lies behind this phrase, to live in harmony, carries with it the idea of having the same mind. That you, I, all of us have the same mind. And as Peter writes this, he's not meaning to say that we are to embrace uniformity. That everyone looks the same or that everyone agrees 100% on everything. He's not saying that we join God's mighty chorus of believers and we are to sing in unison. He's not saying that at all. What he's saying is we need to do our part. We need to sing in harmony together while we're focusing on the essentials because if we do those things well, we're going to sing in tune. And the world is going to rise up and they're going to notice the beauty of who we are. Six months ago, I was in Dallas, Texas at a conference and somebody showed just a portion of a TED Talk. I don't know if you've seen these TED Talks before. This was astounding. And it beautifully demonstrated really what Peter's talking about here. What this guy did is he was a conductor. He's a very well-known conductor, and he's also a composer. And so what he did is he wrote this beautiful piece of music, and then he videotaped himself conducting the entire selection. And then he made that available online, and he asked people across the world to participate. He offered them the parts, of course. You could have your part if you're soprano, alto, tenor, bass. And you would have the music before you. And what he asked for you to do is that you would sing your part. You'd have your music there following his direction because you would watch him on your computer screen while you're videotaping yourself. And then you would send in your video to him and then they would compile all of this to make one giant chorus of people around the world. What he put together, friends, is what we, the church, are to live out in our lives. Let's take a look here. That's us. That's the church under the direction of the Holy Spirit. We live harmoniously. That's who we are. Peter continues, and he says, Finally, all of you live in harmony with one another. Be sympathetic. Because we are mature, he says, we live sympathetically as well. In fact, the Apostle Paul defined this for us. He said, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. He's saying that this is what we're all called to do. This is how we're all called to respond. Not just those people who kind of have a heart for people. No, no. We all are to live this out because of who we are. We live sympathetically. What does that look like? Well, when I was in high school, my junior year of high school, there was one guy, and I know as a Christian I'm not supposed to say this, but there was one guy I couldn't stand. His name was Scott. I worked with Scott. I didn't like him. He troubled me greatly, to be honest with you. You see, what I did at this, at this place, it was, it was a warehouse. It served places like Meyer and other places and had all these food items and everything. And so what I would do when I would show up to work is I would get my first order, if you will. You could actually hold the thing, it would all fall all the way down to the ground. And then I would go down one aisle way after another, you know, with a pallet, getting the various items, loading them on the pallet so it would stack in the right way. And, you know, a few hours later after you've walked down one aisle after another and put this all together, you'd wrap the pallet and then you'd load it on the truck every guy who would work there did the same thing you didn't work with others you worked alone and so what it meant is you'd be down an aisle way alone because it was a big big warehouse well what Scott would do he had a foul mouth he was very strong and he loved to take advantage of people and so he would come down an aisle way where management couldn't see him and then he would come and he'd beat you up He'd actually take you, throw you to the ground, pound on you for a while, and then he'd walk away and laugh. He just thought it was so funny. He did it to other people. He did it to me. I didn't like him. And so on that day, I came home from school, and I was putting my shoes on. I remember sitting on my bed, in my bedroom, putting my shoes on, leaving for work when my dad walked in. And my dad, as I told you before, he was disabled from the time I was 10 years old. He lived life racked in pain, and as a result, he kind of inflicted pain upon others many times. Mostly upon my mom and my brother, the very words that he would say. I wasn't a recipient all that often. But on that day, he just came into my room, and I love my dad. The Lord refined him over time, but on that day, he came in, and I hadn't done anything wrong. It wasn't about that. He just came into my room and said some words to me, like if you're a father and you really want to destroy your son, you'd say what he said to me on that day. And I was stunned. I didn't even know how to respond. I put my shoes on, I just left, I got in the car, and I just kind of drove on autopilot all the way to work that day, just numb. I couldn't even know what to think, what to say. I showed up, got my order, and I began doing my work. I'm going down one aisle way, collecting things, putting it on my pallet, I'm going down another aisle. And once you know it, suddenly as I'm, you know, working, suddenly I saw Scott. There he was. He saw me, and he just starts walking right towards me. And I thought, oh, God, I don't even need this right now. Come on. I can't even deal with this right now. And he came up to me about two feet from where I was, and he stopped. And he looked at me and says, Phil, what's wrong? And in that moment before the person I couldn't even stand, I couldn't even keep it together any longer, and I just wept. I told the person I couldn't even stand what my father had said to me. As I was there just standing and crying, Scott took a couple steps, and he just wrapped his arms around me for a couple minutes. He just held me, and he says, Phil, it's going to be okay. It's going to be okay let me go. He walked away. Scott never beat up on me again. I saw him beat up on other people, but he never beat up on me. Not again. And on that day, someone who is known to inflict pain felt my pain. He displayed sympathy. What's interesting in the life of the church, though, is many times we see people in pain, and how do we respond to them? We respond with our words. You know, we'll say things. Like, things are going to get better. You know, don't worry. It's always darkest before the dawn. Hold on a little while longer. You know, I'll be praying for you. And these are great things to say, but they're incomplete. What Peter is saying is, you know, when other people are hurting, stop trying to love them with your words and start loving them by both feeling their joy and sharing in their pain. Display sympathy. How you doing at that? When you see people in pain, are you... Uh, just don't really have the time to even notice? Or you don't have the time to just stop and come alongside them? Are you displaying sympathy to others all, all around you? This is who we are. This is who we're called to be. We live harmoniously. We live sympathetically. And then Peter writes, Finally, all of you live in harmony with one another... Be sympathetic, love as brothers, love as brothers. Because we are mature, Peter says, we are to live lovingly, lovingly. Now in the church today, the modern day church, we have another term for love. We call it good Christian fellowship. That's how we love each other. We live in fellowship with one another. And what that means in most modern churches is that, you know, the reality is that you come to the service, there are people you would call friends, there are others you would call acquaintances, but most of the people that you worship with you don't really know at all. And still we call that fellowship. For most people, when they show up to church, the only thing they really have in common with everyone else is that they prefer the same service time that they do, right? And we call that fellowship. And yet Peter is setting the bar higher. In fact, the Greek word he uses here is philadelphos, which means really it describes a love that's as strong as your love for family members. What he's saying is that you are to love that person behind you like a sister. You're to love that person in front of you Like a brother. We're to look for opportunities to love each other. So imagine a church where we'd actually think the best about each other and love each other in these ways. I mean, there'd be nobody who would feel lonely because we'd surround them with our love, there'd be nobody in need because we'd step in and meet their need. We are to love others truly, fully. moved here 2 years ago and we first bought a house in Mainville uh, not a bad we love living there it was just too far away for me to keep coming back and forth to church so a year later we sold that house and we moved to Loveland where we now live and the house we bought really wasn't that good a shape, to be honest with you. I mean, it hadn't been taken care of at all. It needed a lot of repair. We bought it because we got a good price on it, and it looks better now. But uh, So we, we bought this house, and there was somebody from our church here that obviously drove by the house and saw that it needed help as well. And so I was gone for a period of days, and I came home, I remember, on that day. And the first thing I noticed was that our whole entryway, where you would enter into the home, was filled with just beautiful pots and flowers and all this beauty i mean they had arranged it just beautifully there for the entrance of the home then i walked into the house and i I went to our back deck we have a, a really large back deck that overlooks the woods there and the only way i could describe it would be that they made it look like the garden of eden it was absolutely beautiful unbelievable We never said that we needed help or that we were looking for this. They basically, out of their love for us, just did it. And I share this story not so that you can love me in those ways. I'm I'm actually asking you to look around you. How can you love that person sitting beside you more? That person behind you? That person in front of you? Friends, that's who we are. Because we are mature, we live lovingly. How can you radically show God's love to someone right here? What might that look like? Peter writes, Finally, all of you live in harmony with one another. Be sympathetic. Love as brothers. Be compassionate. Compassionate. Because we are mature, we live compassionately is what he's saying. Now, the Greek that lies behind this English word compassion is actually kind of gross. It, what it literally means is this, that your inner organs are deeply moved. Okay, so not only that you would feel pain, but you'd be moved to action is kind of what he's trying to say here. That's what Peter's getting us to understand. We live compassionately. And when we see pain around us, we can't help ourselves. We're just moved to action to help solve their problem. That's called living compassionately. Sympathy, of course, is feeling the pain of somebody else. Compassion is putting that into action. It's exactly what Jesus did. In fact, in Mark chapter 1, it tells us a man with leprosy came to him and begged him on his knees, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Filled with compassion, the Bible tells us, Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said, be clean. Immediately the leprosy left him and he was cleansed. Out of his compassion, Jesus stepped in and changed this man's life. A few chapters later, chapter 8. During those days, another large crowd gathered. Since they had nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion for these people. They have already been with me three days and have nothing to eat. If you read on in the story, because of Christ's compassion for them, Jesus fed 4,000 people that day. Compassion equals action. When I was in college, my junior year of college, I transferred to Western Michigan University, a secular university. And uh, as I was there, I was just there a couple months. That's all. I mean, people hardly even knew me yet. I was there a couple months, and in order to put myself through school, because my father was disabled, my mom worked part-time, we had no money. So I had to pay every single penny myself. And so I was working three different jobs to put myself through school. Well, one of my professors one day sat me down. He says, Phil, I mean, you are really busy. What is that all about? And I shared my story with him. And I can tell you this guy who, who heard my story, and he wasn't a Christian. He, God, even in his mind, was kind of off way in the distance. And yet he heard my story. I just told him what my life was about. My parents, our struggles, and I'm working three jobs. He was touched at that moment. I didn't know it, but he was. And what he did is he went up to the, the upper echelon of, of, the, of the place there, went all the way to the higher-ups, and met with them. I didn't know about it. Shortly afterwards, they sat down with me and gave me a huge scholarship. Didn't need to work. Not only for that semester, not only for that year, but for the completion of my degree. I, I got a scholarship, not because of my talent, not because of my stellar grades. I mean they 're fine, but not because I had a, a scholarship given to me by a secular university because of their compassion for me it 's always stuck with me i mean if non Christians can show such compassion, what should it look like for us? What should it look like for us? Who do you know? I was going through pain hardship in their life, and you know about it. You might give them some of your words, but what does it look like for you to put these things into action and truly touch somebody else's life? That's who we are. Because we are mature, we live compassionately. Peter goes on, he says, Finally, all of you live in harmony with one another. Be sympathetic, love as brothers, be compassionate, and humble. Humble. Humble because we are mature we live humbly now you don't need to live very long of course in our world today to realize that there's a lot of problems i mean there's a there's a unity crisis because there's a humility crisis i mean all around us we see pride we see arrogance it's everywhere we turn as a result the reality is people don't want to take orders they just don't they don't want to submit to authority, which is why Peter's been talking about these things over the past couple of weeks with us. They don't want to do these things because we're kind of all about us, aren't we? That's the life that we live. That's the world we live in. In fact, in our culture today, when you hear the word humility, for many people, they look at that as a weak word. It's a word that describes people that don't have that much going for them. They're not all that smart, they're not all that talented, not all that gifted. So they should be humble because they're in a camp to themselves over here while we're over here. One author wrote, true humility is not an abject groveling, self-despising spirit. It is but a right estimate of ourselves as God sees us. Do you have a right estimate of yourself? One way you know that humility is not really taking root as much as it should is when you feel like, you know what, I I deserve this. God, why did you give me that? Why do they get this and I get that? This idea that we have rights. As soon as that enters into our thoughts, of course, we know we don't have humility. That's why Paul wrote that we should not think of ourselves more highly than we ought to think, but to think of ourselves with sound judgment. Sound judgment sees something for what it is. See, humility is being weak and average and knowing it. Pride is being weak and average and thinking otherwise. I came across this statement about five years ago. I've kind of taken it with me because it touched me, kind of changed the way that I look at things. This guy wrote, I used to think that God's gifts were on shelves one above another, and the taller we grow, the easier we can reach them. Now I find that God's gifts are on shelves one beneath another. And the lower we stoop, the more we get. So, are you humble? How do you know what humility looks like? Well, I'll just tell you this. Somebody who's humble is constantly amazed at the goodness of God in their lives. Like you wake up in the morning, you're having breakfast in your house, and you just look around and go, wow, God, I mean, Seriously? Thank you, God, that I get to live like this. You are so good to me. And you get in your car and you're driving to work and you're just, you looking around and go, God, I really get to drive in this car? I mean, there are people across the world who have to walk to different places, take an animal to different places. I get to have this car, seriously? And then you show up to your job and you're like, God, wow, you have provided for me in amazing ways. I mean, everywhere you go throughout your life, you're just overwhelmed by the goodness of God to you. When pride comes in sometimes, we'll do well in our lives, we'll do good for Him, and then we'll think, well, God owes us a favor because we did good for Him. That's pride. So are you humble? Are you? About four years ago, I went to this leadership conference, and uh, people had gathered from all over the country to go to this conference, and And they had a slate of leaders that were well-known across the world, really, people who had run huge companies, huge organizations I was just excited to go to learn. And so I went to this conference, and I looked at the slate of speakers and when they were speaking, and it's so exciting, but there was one speaker I had never heard of before, I thought, I'm going to skip that session because how good could they be if I've never heard of them before? Seriously, right? And so I was going to skip the session. And then the last moment I thought, you know what, I, I should just go. I actually paid to, to come to this thing. I'll, I could learn, you know, from, the, from anyone. And so I sat down and they introduced this woman. Never heard of her before. They introduced her and, and, and she stood up and she began to walk to the main platform. She didn't even get to the podium yet. She just began to walk to the platform. And just by the way that she walked, suddenly I found myself joining with everyone else. And we just began to applaud her. And the applause went on and on. And it turned into a standing ovation for this person who hadn't even said a word yet. See, we were all just struck by the fact that merely even by the way that she walked, everyone knew that we were in the presence of one of great humility. And when you're in the presence of someone of great humility, you stand up and you take notice. She walked up to the podium and she just put her head down just to say, you know what, I'm not worthy of what you're doing right now. I want you to learn a little bit from her today and you're going to see this clip and you're going to hear the applause you're going to hear our applause and then just a few short clips of some of the things she had to say and I want you to listen listen to how she views herself listen to how she views God listen to how she views God's calling in her life and see if her heart resonates with yours Or as you listen to her, go, wow, there's a long distance. I need to travel from where I am to where she's at. We're called to live humbly. Let's learn right now, just a little bit, from Mama Maggie Gobrin, the Mother Teresa of Cairo.
1: As the youngest daughter of a doctor, I enjoyed affluent lifestyle. God has blessed me so much. I always like to have music, singing, playing, sports, traveling to Europe every year to get the best fashion dress, wearing jewelry. And I really always like to be elegant. And later, I found to be elegant comes from inside. I was teaching at the American University in Cairo. <clears throat> I had the best students, the smartest in the whole country. When God wanted to promote me, He said, leave the best, the smartest, and go to the poorest of the poor. At that moment, I couldn't believe it. I'm the least, I'm the last one who could fit. Because I'm the one who's forgiven much, but love so little. I thought I'm so disappointing to God, how come He chose someone like me? With God's grace, I left everything and I found him shining, waiting for me with a crown of
0: love. Because we are mature, we live humbly, humbly. Peter then goes on to write, did not repay evil with evil. Or insult with insult, but with blessing. Because to this you were called so that you may inherit a blessing. Now somebody who doesn't repay evil with evil or insult with insult is somebody who shows someone else grace. So what Peter is saying here is because we are mature, we live graciously. We live graciously. Because that's who we are. The reality is I, I don't know all of you. I don't know your past. I don't know where you've come from. I don't really know your story. But even though I don't know every detail of your life, there's some things that I know here today. Right here in this room, right now, there are people who have been abused, emotionally, physically. There are people who have been battered. People have been betrayed, forgotten, raped, slandered, ridiculed, and wounded to the core. Now many people, what they do when they're hurt like that, they just try to get by every day just hoping that no one's going to notice. That they're, they're putting on a good enough show to, to, that nobody sees those hidden scars that are just beneath the surface. And so as they keep on going, as they keep on hiding, they just try to do their best in life. But eventually, eventually over time, that pain shows up. And they come to know other things like detachment. You can't really get close to people, they know loneliness. Bitterness takes root. Anger. Suddenly out of nowhere comes verbal attacks. Insults. Peter says, you know what? I know your pain. But I also know there's a much better way. Because you are a follower of Jesus Christ. Because you know who you are. You are to show those people grace. And bless them. And when you bless them, you in turn will get a blessing as well. The blessing of freedom. The blessing of life. See, as Peter wrote these words, he was basing them really on the Old Testament. Solomon, one of the wisest men who ever lived, said, If your enemy is hungry, give him food to eat. If he is thirsty, give him water to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head, and the Lord will reward you. Now, as a kid, I misunderstood the past. I thought, okay, if somebody does me wrong, then I can do them wrong, and then the Lord's going to reward me. I mean, isn't that great? Don't you love the Bible, right? What he's really saying is this. When somebody wrongs you, and you shower grace over them, and you shower them with blessings, to them, it's going to feel like coals of fire that bring about remorse in their heart and repentance, ultimately to help restore the relationship. That's living graciously. It's something that Louis Zamperini knew all too well. I don't know if you heard of him before, but he was an Olympian from the United States. Here, he was also he also fought in World War II. In fact. In 1943, during a bombing mission, his plane actually went down into the ocean. Uh, most of the people on board were killed. Uh, he lived along with a few others. And he lived in the waters there for 47 grueling days. Eventually, he was captured by the Japanese Navy. He was put in a concentration camp, where day in and day out, he was brutalized by the guards that were there. And on top of that, there was a man known as the Bird. The bird would be somebody. If you were underneath him, he would torture you to the point of death. In fact, afterwards, the bird was was on the forty most wanted list in Japan. They were trying to find him. He was viewed as a criminal. Well, the war eventually ended. Louis came back here to America. He began to struggle with all of his bitterness, all of his anger. He began to overdrink, he became an alcoholic. He experienced nightmares every single night that he tried to sleep. But then he found Jesus, and the moment he found Jesus and experienced grace from God that is the moment he would tell you that the nightmares stopped, the drinking stopped, the bitterness stopped, the anger stopped he began to learn what Peter's been teaching us, that he was to no longer repay evil with evil or insult with insult, but to respond with blessing. And so Louis lived that out. He lived that out to the, to the level that we are to live this out truly in our own lives. Louis died a couple years ago. But before he died, he was put on camera to share part of his story. So listen now to Louis And his son and his daughter explained how he responded to those who mistreated him. Let's take a look. While I was still on my knees, my life changed in a matter of moments because I knew I was through getting drunk, and I knew that I forgave my guards, and I knew it was a miracle because I forgave the bird, (laughs) And that was the first night. The first night in two and a half years, I didn't have a nightmare. And I haven't had one since. And Louis realized that God can forgive him for all the rotten things he did in his life. That he ought to be able to forgive those that had done him wrong. So, forgiving the guards and the bird uh, was actually salvation for him. It really turned him around in an instant.
1: He- Decided he needed to test his forgiveness, to see if he really had truly achieved it. And he went back to Japan to meet the guards who had, who had abused him so terribly.
0: He went to every single one, looked him in the eye, and told him that he forgave him for mm-hmm. the treatment that he received when he was a prisoner of war. So are you living graciously? That's what we're called to do because that's who we are. Peter then ends this entire section with this beautiful hymn-like song. It says, Whoever would love life and see good days must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from deceitful speech. They must turn from evil and do good. They must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are attentive to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Let me read that last part again. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are attentive to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. And as he closes out this section, he's trying to get us to understand this, that when maturity flows from us, the Lord will uphold us. When maturity flows from us, the Lord will uphold us. So let me ask you again, do you know who you are? Do you know who you are? Because we are mature, we are to display harmony, sympathy, love, compassion, humility, and grace. And these characteristics that Peter writes about here, they don't come to us naturally as humans, do they? But the truth is this. They are gifts that God gives to us when we pray for them. So as we close our time out now, let us pray. Will you just bow? And spend some time as Jen comes up to sing this song. Spend some time with God. Saying, God, will you do what only you can do in my life? If there are a few areas here where you know are even absent or just really need to be strengthened, say, God, work in me in such a way that I can live out how you already see me. You've called me to be mature, so God, grow me. I don't really feel the pain of other people. I'm too busy focusing on myself. Forgive me. I don't really love people because I'm too busy kind of loving myself. I see the pain of others around me, but I don't really step in to meet it in truth it's probably because of my pride I need to grow in humility and Lord with the grace that you've given me help to respond to others grace pray for these attributes to be true in your life that you would live out the call that he's placed on you to be mature